There is no feeling in the world like being alive in a character written by Shakespeare. You can express things that you cannot express yourself because you simply don't have the language that Shakespeare does. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, June Thomas. And I'm your other host, Isaac Butler. Isaac, it is always a pleasure to talk with you. But tell me, whose beautiful, sonorous voice did we hear at the top of the show? Uh, Yes, we heard the dulcet tones of the legendary stage actor, Patrick Page. And why did you want to speak with Patrick now? Well, Patrick is one of the most accomplished actors of Shakespeare in America. In fact, I know this is going to sound crazy, but I, I say it to his face in the interview. He is actually really my favorite King Lear that I've ever what? seen. And uh, he is currently starring in a one-man show off-Broadway, which he wrote, called All the Devils Are Here, which is about the villains of Shakespeare. And well, you know me. I'm never going to miss an opportunity to geek out about Shakespeare and acting. Nor should you. Well, I cannot wait to hear that conversation. But tell me, Isaac, is there something extra for Slate Plus members? If so, what will they hear? Yes. Well, as I think our opening made quite clear, Patrick has this kind of astounding speaking voice. (laughs) And if you're a Hades Town fan, you've actually heard his incredible singing voice uh, because he played Hades in Hades Town. It's unbelievably low. And I just wanted to ask him about that. You know, how did he develop it? How did it affect his career? You know, and, and it sort of unlocked a really fascinating conversation about his early career and his transition into being a musical theater actor. Well, what a treat. If you're a member of Slate Plus, you'll hear that at the end of the episode. And if you weren't, let me just tell you, it is incredibly easy to join. As a Slate Plus member, you get to hear extra segments on this show and others such as The Waves and Culture Gabfest. You'll get bonus episodes of shows like Big Mood, Little Mood and Decodering that are only for Slate Plus members. And of course... And this is very important. You will never hit a paywall at Slate.com. To learn more, go to Slate.com slash Working Plus. All right, let's hear Isaac's conversation with Patrick Page. Patrick Page, thank you so much for joining us on Working to talk about your process. Thank you. I'm grateful to be here. So you are currently in previews for your one-man show, All the Devils Are Here. Can you tell us a little bit about the show and and what it is? Yeah, All the Devils Are Here is subtitled How Shakespeare Invented the Villain. And that is the story of the show. I think of it as a kind of a detective story or a thriller in which I play over a dozen of Shakespeare's antagonists, bad guys, uh, anti-heroes. But I do it chronologically from 1590 to 1611 because Shakespeare was sort of handed this tradition of the medieval morality plays and the character which was called the vice, who was a kind of personified sin like greed, envy, jealousy, or lust. And that character was a lot of fun. The character got to soliloquize, play directly with the audience, improvise, Um, It was a comic character. And being Shakespeare and being the genius that he was and having the curious mind that he did, he begins to ask, well, why would people do these terrible things to one another? And begins to probe deeply into the causes 
of evil, the causes of wrongdoing. And so over the course of 20 years, he goes more and more and more deeply into why we misbehave. And that is the journey of All the Devils Are Here. That's fascinating. Who are some of the late period villains you're you're talking about in the show? Well, the ultimate confrontation uh, that the play moves toward, that All the Devils Are Here moves toward, is Macbeth. Right. Macbeth is a person who cannot be categorized as someone who suffered a wrongdoing, like uh, Shylock or Aaron, who's, who's Behavior is in some ways understandable. I mean, Shylock was spat upon by Antonio. It's hardly surprising that when the law is on his side, he wants to use it. Um, Richard III obviously is uh, marginalized by his society because of his physical disability. And having explored all of those various, I guess, loopholes or outs, Shakespeare then confronts the problem of someone who has everything going for him. He has a loving wife. He has a brilliant future in front of him. He is a respected war hero. And Macbeth chooses the path of evil. And normally in, a, in the, you know, the dramaturgy of a standard play, there's an antagonist and a protagonist. And they fight against each other until eventually the protagonist overcomes the antagonist. In Macbeth, Shakespeare has the audacity to put both the antagonist and the protagonist into the title character's heart, and he battles with himself. Amazing. So what was the genesis of the show? What drew you to wanting to do a evening-length, you know, one-man work about villainy in Shakespeare? Well, Shakespeare is my great love and my great passion, and um, the longer I live with Shakespeare the more I receive from him, the more depth, the more mystery, the more sustenance I get. And I think whenever you have that experience with anything, whether it's a a great painting that you want to share with people, a, a great symphony you want to share, anything that you find life sustaining and fulfilling, I think you want to share with other people and you want to, uh, show them how glorious it is. So that's the main thing. Of course, the opportunity to perform these great, great characters is a bonus. There is no feeling in the world like being alive in a character written by Shakespeare. It's a kind of heightened experience where you can express things that you cannot express yourself because you simply don't have the language for it, but Shakespeare does. Mm. So I've always tried to create opportunities for myself to live inside those words. Amazing. Uh, Now, was your writing process like you sitting at a desk, you know, quill in hand with some parchment or a typewriter or, or is it captured improv? Were you in the room or, you know, how, how did you actually generate the text that is written by Patrick Page within it? Well, it's a combination. I mean, it started off with just, okay, here's some speeches I would like to do. Um, some characters I've explored that I would like to share with people, many of whom I've played in full production, some of whom I haven't. And then who knows where it came from, but I, I landed upon the idea of exploring them chronologically. And that was really the light bulb moment for me, that uh, one might be able to 
in a way, trace how Shakespeare became Shakespeare, mm-hmm. how he, he went from a playwright who was very, very good on the level of, let us say, someone like Christopher Marlowe, who was a great playwright, into someone who was transcendent. Right. And that journey happened through the exploration, I think, of, of two or three great themes and one of those great themes is evil. The other two were probably power and love. And so I began to sort of write out things that I would like to say about that, cobble them together. When something would occur to me on the subway, I'd pull out the voice recorder and record it. And slowly, you know, as a kind of uh, patchwork, put something together. I then, because I... I knew that if I wanted to perform it, I needed a, a date certain by which it was uh, when I would have to perform it. So I called a friend of mine who ran the Utah Shakespeare Festival. They have a glorious replica of the Globe Theater there. And they were doing a conference in October of 2017 for high school students. And they had a 1,000 high school students on their campus. And I said, I, I will come and I will do this show for free on the this replica of the globe. And they said, all right, let's do it. And so I went out there and I did it at 10 a.m. in the morning for 900 high school students. And it was the most wonderful way to workshop the play because, of course, high school students will tell you when they're bored. Yeah. Um, they won't be shy about it at all. They'll tell you when they're engaged. And, and the piece, the story, and Shakespeare's language held these high school students and then I had a wonderful conversation with them afterwards, which gave me a lot of instruction. And then I thought, well, all right, these are novices with Shakespeare. Now, I need to see how it might hold with people who have more experience. Hmm. So I went and performed it for a bunch of Shakespeare experts in Prague. And it held them. But again, I learned. And I went the next morning and immediately you know, did a full rewrite of the script based on just what I'd learned in the room, not even speaking to people, but just in terms of their attention. And so I kept working on it. And then this opportunity arose. I asked Mara Isaacs, who is the lead producer of Hadestown, uh, if she would consider producing. And thank goodness she said yes. And Daryl Roth said yes at the Daryl Roth Theater. And so now here we are. Amazing. You've worked with uh, Simon Godwin several times. You're close collaborators at this point. What is it that's special about that working relationship? What does he do as a director that you find as an actor particularly, well, and a writer, particularly helpful? We have an incredible symbiosis, the two of us. Um, Simon's instinct is very fleet, um, when we were doing King Lear together, he wanted to cut much, much more than I wanted to cut. Um, and so I would fight for the retention of things. He would fight for the cutting of things. And we would land somewhere in the middle. And uh, the middle way, as the Buddha may have pointed out, is a good way. So um, that's one thing. He has a tremendous sense of storytelling, of how the audience wants to lean in. Which I notice, for example, when I watch... Um, long-form television, really great long-form television like Succession or White Lotus, or th- that, that, that these writers nowadays have a tremendous sense of 
what the audience needs to get next so that by the time you get to the end of one of those shows, you're leaning in and you just want to press the next button to go to the next episode. And Simon has a great sense of like, what does the audience want next? Do they want three more of the fool's jokes or do they want to find out what happens when King Lear comes out of the house? So if three of the fool's jokes have to go, that's what happens. I would have never cut those jokes. He cuts them, right? So that was the case with this play. And when we were workshopping this play, in fact, we made a, a very strong revision to the piece um, when we were workshopping a couple of weeks ago in uh, Washington and in our rehearsals and previews here in, in New York. We made a very strong revision to the play, which I was resistant of at first, but which it turns out to be absolutely right. Mm. You mentioned that uh, you pull in opposite directions. I have to imagine that, you know, therefore conflict, whether it's minor disagreement or major, you know, butting of heads is probably as it is of any long form collaborative relationship, part of that, that relationship. How have you learned to, to navigate conflict within that creative partnership? Well, we've never had an argument. Um, I mean, we've had disagreements, certainly. Right. But I think also we... Uh, there's a little bit of like um, horse trading, you know, I'll give you this, you give me that. Um, <laughs> right. Trade you one fool's joke for... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, I try to stay in my lane. The fool's jokes aren't always my lane, you know. Uh, right. If I'm off stage, that's no longer my business. Um, the fool's jokes are my business if I need them as King Lear in order to get somewhere that Lear needs to get to. Um and, and I think that that is an important distinction to make, that, you know, there is a director and let him, as Jack O'Brien says, goddamn direct the play. Right. We'll be back with more of Isaac's conversation with Patrick Page. Listeners, we really want to hear from you. Every other Thursday on Working Overtime, we answer listener questions. So please ask us one. Tell us your creative challenges and let us help you. Drop us a line at working at slate.com. You can also send a voice memo to that address or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's return to Isaac's conversation with Patrick Page. I have to be careful that this will turn into the King Lear podcast because beyond my obsession with that play, I, I've said this to many people and I will say it directly to your face now. Uh, it's my favorite King Lear I've ever seen was your performance at the Shakespeare Theater. I just thought it was was monumental and incredible. Um, so I want to use it a little bit to talk about how you approach Shakespeare just sort of in general. You sure. know, when you are going to assay one of these roles, do you begin with scanning the text with, you know, putting the little uh, pentameter marks in it? Or do you begin with research? Or w what is your process as an actor approaching Shakespeare like? Well, uh, the scanning of the text is very important to me. In other words, the rhythm of the line informs everything, the shape of the line um, and the rhetoric and the imagery. 
whether or not the character is using imagery or whether the character is devoid of imagery at that time. All of that's very, very important to me. But at this point, a lot of that comes very naturally. I don't go through with a pencil anymore and, and mark the strong and soft beats. I do begin with a lot of research, and usually what I'm looking for is if the character has, or I suspect the character has some kind of either pathology or medical condition, then I want to make sure I get that right. Mm. So in All the Devils Are Here, for example, I go pretty deeply into the research I did around psychopathy regarding Iago, because it was once I came to that diagnosis that everything in the character fell into place. And without that diagnosis, nothing about the character makes sense. It's really quite extraordinary what Shakespeare did in terms of detecting that personality disorder in 1605 and putting it down with clinical precision before there was any kind of knowledge of it in the medical literature. So that that's super important. Again, like with King Lear, diagnosing Louis body dementia, which Lear ticks every box for Louis body dementia. If you were to diagnose him with Alzheimer's, it wouldn't make sense at all. Mm -hmm. um, so getting those things right and then finding like uh, that gives you very strong uh, rails to play within. And then I usually have to find in, in terms of building the the backstory of the character, I tend to be a uh, a kind of a magpie. I steal from everywhere. So uh, a character like King Lear, I've taken things from the biography of Donald Trump, certainly, of, uh, of Muhammad Ali, surprisingly, because I knew there had to be a great man there. There had to be a great man there who also was in some ways who had a massive ego, massive sense of himself, but beloved by the people who matter, by um, Gloucester, by Fool, by Kent, and that that man who existed before Act One, Scene One of the play had to be very, very clear in my mind. And Ali was a great model for me in, in those terms. Yeah. Someone who had tremendous moral courage, but who could also be, if you were on the wrong side, uh, insufferable. So that's a lot of the work. And then, and, and then it's mostly dreaming. It's lying down with my eyes closed and going through the play from the character's point of view, trying to see through his eyes and watching the scene through the character's eyes saying the words. Amazing. Amazing. And is that kind of your process in general because you know obviously we're geeking out about Shakespeare today but you've done a lot of work in musicals you've been in new plays you've been on TV you know is the process very similar from project to project it is and you know you talk about in your wonderful book uh the method Stanislavski's word for immersion in a character um which is escaping me now you'll give it to me uh, it's Parajivania. Parajivania. Per Parajivania. Yeah. Difficult what, what, to pronounce, but uh, what a yeah. gorgeous word! I, I can't believe I continue to forget it. Parajivania. But that feeling of immersion in a character comes very rarely, um, and it, it has to do with I think when you you meet the material and the material is deep enough and rich enough that it 
it has three dimensions that can be entered into. And then you live with it and become relaxed enough in it, into it that eventually the character begins to play for you and you lose consciousness of, of any, uh, any kind of working of the material. Right. Yeah, that's interesting because I think one of the things that gets lost a little in Stanislavski-based instruction and approach is, you know, the goal was eventually not to be thinking about any of that stuff, right? It's yes. like you memorize the emotions of the character the same way you memorize the blocking of the character and it all just kind of happens and you're there, you know? That, that's right. That you walk from the dressing room to the stage and your preparation is at that moment then as soon as you walk on, you're just, you're there. That's um, right. Uh, is that your experience? You know, when it's when it's going well, I mean, is that is that your experience that you're not thinking about what do I want in this moment? It's just kind of That's happening. Right. That's right. I, it has to be. It, it has to be that you're you're no longer thinking about anything. You're simply listening, and by listening, I mean acutely aware, not just with your ears, but with all of your sensory apparatus, including the sensory apparatus that we don't have any language for to what is coming at you and you're simply responding but you have inhabited the character so deeply that it is no longer your responses it's king lear's responses or claudius's responses or hamlet's responses you know that you know the character so well that the character responds right. instead of you responding and of course that's the way uh with any performing art at its highest level you you have to know that yo-yo ma is not thinking about the technique of bowing um, Barishnikov is not thinking about the technique of dancing. He's feeling something, yeah. expressing something. And the, and the body does what it does because he's, he, he's trained it so over such a long period of time with such skill and rigor to do what, whatever the music asks it to do. Yeah, totally. You know, it's funny that you bring that up because I've been thinking a lot since the book came out about you know, what experiencing or Parajivanya really is because musicians experience that and they're not in character. Tennis players experience that. They're not playing a character. That's right. right. You know, every, every one of these forms. And I read this thing about brain scanning experiments they've done on musicians. And there's this area of the brain. It's not really an area. It's an array that connects various areas of the brain called the DMN that is like somewhat like responsible for our sense of self, basically, right? And so if you get a musician, highly trained, you know, top of the field musician, and you have them play a piece they know by heart or do scales or whatever, their brain looks pretty normal. But if you have them improvise, you know, if you have them sort of just fully enter that moment and improvise, uh, the DMN chills out. Hmm. They lose their sense of self. One of the things yeah. that's going on in the brain is that they lose their sense of self. And I read about that and I was like, that's it. That's what it, it is. That, that is it. It is it because uh, you put your finger on something very important because when you are in that state at Parashivanya, you are in a state of improvisation, mm. complete improvisation. Even so though the blocking might remain the same. The blocking, is, the blocking is there. The words are there. there but, but it is not. It is completely improvised. Mm. And uh, it doesn't matter where you're standing. Now, you might, <laughs> you, you might uh, in order to shake things up, you might move to a different part of the stage if the lights allow you to do so or whatever. But, but you don't need to. You don't need to. I remember hearing a story about uh, Jeremy Irons and Glenn Close in, uh, in uh, The Real Thing where they, they were 
getting a bit rote. And so they said to each other, all right, let's go out tonight. And the only rule is you can't go anywhere that you've ever been before on the stage. And you, you have to do completely something. If you sat at the moment, you don't sit, sit there. If you stood, if you walked left, you don't walk left. And so they did a show and they just to break those habits and to mm-hmm. place themselves back in the present moment. That's amazing. That's amazing. Uh, which actually, you know, I was thinking about that with you because you've been in a lot of long running projects. You were in Hades Town for for how long were you in Hades Town? All the productions put together. Must well, have been we a couple of we years. yeah we. I mean, I started with the show in 2016, I think, yeah. uh, and I ended with the show uh, in 2022, I think. Right. You've played Scar in The Lion King. You were the Green Goblin in uh, Spider-Man Turn Off the Dark. I mean, uh, your run in King Lear was not short. The run of this show is not a bre- it's not a two-week workshop. It's it's multiple months. So how do you keep it fresh within that time so that it doesn't feel rote, particularly when you're part of a grand mechanism like The Lion King? I imagine that's that that has additional challenges. It's always a challenge. I mean, like with King Lear, I had a little trick where I would, before the show, I asked the actors uh, who played Fool and Cordelia to um, do a repetition with me before the show. So we would repeat before the show, and that would bring me into something of a present moment. Mm. Um, I mean, the, the, the bottom line is you listen. You listen. You open everything, your eyes, your ears, your heart. I, I have an acting studio in uh, New York and, and we, uh, you know, at the beginning of every session, we begin with, with becoming present through uh, listening and repetition. And I find that on the days that I teach, I act better because I'm reminding myself to be there. Of course, an audience in a one-man show can help. Right. If they, if they decide they want to be vocal on a night, that's very helpful because it, it's a response and you can build your presence off of those responses. If they decide they want to be quiet, for example, Saturday night, we had a full house, but they decided they wanted to be quiet. And of course, when one is young, I remember being in my 20s and 30s and being quite resentful when an audience wanted to be quiet. Right. But it's a bad house. Got, it's a bad house. Those guys, they, I, I, I've had those conversations before. Yeah. Yeah. I don't believe in bad a dead houses. Room. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Uh, you know, I'll still use the phrase tough room because it, it is a little bit tougher. But it, to let them be who they want to be, it was quite a lesson for me on Saturday night because I, I do a little conversation with the audience to talk back after many of my shows. And um, so they announced that there would be a talk back after the Saturday night show, and they were very quiet. So I thought, I'll go out there and there'll be a few people. The entire audience had stayed. Mm. Uh, Something like seven or eight people had left. So I walked back out for the talk back to a full house. Uh, That was how enthusiastic they were about the show, and yet they were quiet. But when they had the opportunity to engage with me after the show, they were filled with enthusiasm and questions. And I've learned that lesson uh, probably 100,000 times in my life, (laughs) and I've needed to relearn it that many times. Mm. So that is one way uh, the audience can can bring you to life, Um, but mainly listening, listening, training yourself to listen, which, again, I think... um, when we talk about these other forms, I think uh, I think a musician is training themselves to listen, to be present. What's happening 
what's really happening with my instrument at this moment. It's a little different than it was last night. It's a little colder tonight. It's a little warmer tonight. The wood, the string is doing something a little bit different. It's responding to me differently. It, to be acutely aware of what is actually happening. Mark Rylance has a wonderful phrase that he says when he's getting off. He says, come to your senses, Mark. Come to your senses, your senses. What do you smell? What do you see? What do you hear? What do you feel? Come back to your senses. One thing I know, I've noticed about the the British tradition of doing Shakespeare is that those guys are really well aware and think really actively of all the major productions of that role before they do it. You know, if you read um, Anthony Schur's wonderful books about playing Shakespeare characters, there's sort of a history of every actor he's ever met who's played that role and how he wants to fit in within that tradition. Do you find that kind of awareness helpful to you? Or do you just sort of as a, like when you were approaching Lear, were you like, I just don't want to go anywhere near even thinking about (laughs) anyone else's Lear? No, I think about everybody else's. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, I'm, I'm a magpie. I steal whatever I can from, uh, if somebody got a moment right and I think, oh my goodness, that is what Shakespeare wrote. I never knew that's what he wrote until Michael Hordern showed me that he right. wrote that, right? So then I say, okay, I learned from that person. Uh, I also learned what not to do from people say, oh, that didn't work. That didn't work. Or you can't do that with it. I remember watching Rylance's Richard III and thinking it was such a beautiful, noble experiment to play Richard in this way as someone who pretended to be harmless. But it made nonsense out of uh, all the rest of the people in the play who are constantly saying, he's so dangerous, he's a bottled spider, he's a bunch back-toed. I thought, well, what a great experiment, and it doesn't, it doesn't work. Um, that this is written, he's written as a kind of a shark gliding through the water, and we delight, we need to see the shark. We don't want to see a porpoise, you know, leaping above the waves. We want to see that single dorsal fin gliding toward its target. So uh, I, I learn both from people's successes and from their noble failures. Uh, you know, because you are also an acting teacher, uh, you know, I don't want you to, if you feel like I'm asking you to give away the secrets for free, you know, to, just, uh, just oh, they warn me. But, I'm, yeah, but I'm, <laughs> I'm wondering if you, you know, for our listeners who want to train their sensory attention better as a way of improving their work or maybe just being more present in the day to day, you know, what are some things they, they could do? Well, the main thing you can do is meditation. I mean, you, you sit. And you close your eyes and you begin to watch your breath and just your breath, only your breath. You'll begin to see how much information there is, how if you watch it in one point, whether it's in, let's say, the rising and falling of your abdomen or in the cool and warm going in and out of your nose, you take one point and you observe it and you see if you can place your attention entirely there And what you will notice, of course, is that thoughts will begin to arise. And thoughts is just a fancy word for talking in your head or (laughs) pictures in your head. Right. Talking and pictures will begin in your head at some point. At some point along this process, it might take, if you, you might come to it very quickly or it might take you years or decades, but you will begin to notice that the talking and the pictures in the head aren't being done by you. (laughs) They're happening. And then you begin to be able to observe those. 
And then you begin to wonder, if I can observe those, then who's observing? And that will bring you into the present moment after some practice. Mm. Amazing. You've mentioned a little bit about maybe some of your rituals before you go on stage, you know, the repetition exercise and stuff like that. Are there things you need to do to kind of let go of the character when it's over? I mean, you know, with Lear, you're going to the absolute extremes of human experience, right? Uh, Is the curtain call enough to say goodbye to the role or are there things you need to do to kind of come to your senses? Yeah, it's not enough. And I don't really, I don't have an answer to that. It's a, it, it's a profound question. And I don't mean to sound all highfalutin and mysterious about it, but I know that, for example, with Lear, I noticed about a week or two, perhaps three, I can't remember, after Lear closed, I went back to a kind of medicine person that I go to occasionally in New York, with uh, psilocybin treatment, who does extraordinary work with uh, music. And I used that session to sort of shed the character. And it was, um, it was very, it was really a struggle. It was a big struggle. Um, I've had in the past, in, in those kinds of sessions, I've had quite wonderful, transcendent, even blissful experiences. And this one was one of terrible, struggle and um it wasn't pleasant at all um but i did feel a lot a lot lighter afterwards so who knows that's incredible i mean it it really points to one of the things about acting that makes it so odd and special is how much of it's ephemeral how much of it resists language yeah you know how much is just i don't know you got to do it to know what it is yes i i there's a strong tradition for example among actors in the UK, especially the Welsh and the Scots and people like uh, Richard Burton and Brian Cox and Anthony Hopkins of saying, well, you just get on with it. You just do it, have a drink, go home and forget about it. And I admire that in a way. Um, But I don't think it's 100% honest. If you look, for example, at Hopkins, who I admire as much as any actor in the world, but in terms of his struggles with alcoholism and the other things that he's dealt with, I think I think he may be a bit in denial about the cost of the roles he's played. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for joining us today to talk about your process and your work as an actor and writer. It's been great to speak with you. Thank you. It's been wonderful to be here. Up next, Isaac and I will talk about acting exercises and ways to get feedback on your creative work. Stick around. Isaac, that was an amazing interview. I learned a huge amount. First, I'm just curious. My ears perked up when you said that Patrick was your favorite Lear. I know you've seen a ton of productions, so I'm just curious what stood out about his performance. Yeah, totally. So I think that in order for this to make sense, there's this thing about Lear. The reason why Lear is kind of the Mount Everest of stage acting is that the role is huge, the play is really long, et cetera, et cetera, and so forth. But it's also because the journey that he goes on is kind of impossible to pull off. You know, in the uh-huh. first scene of the play, he's the most powerful person 
you know, in the world, mm-hmm. right? And um, act or two later, he's an enfeebled old man going insane. And then mm-hmm. he recovers his wits and then he descends into insanity again. And he kind of seesaws back and forth from those as he gets physically weaker at rapid speed and then eventually dies of heartbreak. You know, he's so physically weak at the end that he dies of sadness. Yeah. And it's just really hard to do that. Uh, almost all Lears, you get a kind of two thirds of that work. And then the other third of it is like, okay, you know, you get a Lear that can like really nail the madness, but they can't do the weakness. Or you get a Lear yeah. that's like really good at the kind of projecting the power and rage, but can't do the vulnerability or whatever. Uh, Patrick was really the only Lear I've seen on stage. Huh. That did all of it. It's one of those things where in film it's maybe a little bit easier because you know you could take yeah. breaks, you could take scenes yeah. again and stuff. Uh, Anthony Hopkins Lear, which is on Amazon, I believe, and a film directed by Richard Eyre, is quite good. But this is the only time I've seen someone do the entire journey on stage, which is yeah. really like uh, it's like watching an incredible. It's right like watching Simone Biles nail the <laughs> the double Yurchenko or whatever, yeah, you know, except yeah. for three hours. Yeah. yeah. Wow. I was really fascinated by how Patrick kept returning to the idea of listening as being one of the most important things you can do as an actor. He had various kinds of listening even. And as an outsider, I have to say that when I'm watching a performance, I've caught myself thinking, wow, that character is really listening, by which I suppose I mean, wow, I'm really convinced that I'm watching a real conversation where that person is responding to something they just heard for the first time. So... Since I'm in conversation with an eminent expert on acting technique, how do you get performers to be open, which is another word he used, I think, and just listen? Did you say something? I just uh, I just kind of zoned out there. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, 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 there are a lot of different ways to do this, to listen actively, to be present. Uh, but it's worth saying that most actors train themselves in how to do it. You know, it is not, uh, you know, particularly when you're hearing the same lines over and over again, uh, you know, if it's a sixth month of the run of a show, it is so easy to just check out, you know? So you start doing this by training yourself using exercises that really train your attention so that Mm -hmm. you get better and better and better at just really focusing on something for long periods of time. I don't think this is, you know, to expand it beyond acting, because we have people from all sorts of fields who listen Mm -hmm. to this show. uh, If I could recommend a book, there's this guy named Murray Schaefer who wrote a very influential book. I think it's in the 70s called The Tuning of the World. Uh, And he developed a lot of listening exercises intended for composers, you know, for Hmm. to be out there in the world to listen to what the world actually sounds like. Wow. And how that sound is changing over the course of our lives. It's it's also a book about the about environmentalism, right? Um, and you can Google those exercises. If you just Google Murray Schaefer exercises, you'll find some to try out. But a really basic one is this: just find a spot outside, maybe a place that you can return to multiple times at different times uh, of day or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, set a timer, close your eyes, and really listen and try to hear and differentiate between as many sounds as possible because lots of different sounds are going on, right? The wind, people's footsteps, a distant car alarm. Well, you could talk about Brooklyn, a distant car (laughs) alarm, uh, you know, whatever it is. Uh, So just just listen and and really, you know, this isn't about letting your mind wander and meditating this time. This is about really 
staying focused on those sounds. And uh, then when the time is up, write down everything you remember. And when you're writing down the sounds, try to be really specific. So you don't say, you know, like a car horn, but actually what is that car horn? Is it a cluster of three notes? Is it the Godfather theme? You know, what, what <laughs> is it? Is it, uh, what does the wind in the trees sound like? Right? Does it sound like sandpaper? You know, you do stuff like that. So you get really, really detailed. Um, you could do that with really all of your senses and train them in, in really powerful ways. Wow. That sounds really cool. Apart it's from cool. Else, like, it, you don't have to be an actor to want to improve your focus. So, no. Yeah. Wanna... yeah. And, and, you know, what Stanislavski would teach and the technique that got brought to the United States from him uh, is a lot of sensory concentration exercises. They were all smokers because it was the early 20th century. So it was always yeah. a book of matches is what you would start with. And you would you should be able to spend 15 minutes looking at a book of matches and figure out like, what is the texture of each little bit? You know, what does the design look like? Is there paint scuffed somewhere? It's, and be able to then describe it from memory. Oh my goodness. Another acting thing, Patrick also talked about doing repetition with key actors before a play. I'm not familiar with that. How does that look or, or I guess, sound? Uh, yeah, so repetition is really great work for training, listening, and being present as well. The repetition exercises are a series of exercises developed by uh, the great acting teacher Samford Meisner. And they're the key to Meisner technique, which, you know, as listeners you may have heard of, Diane Keaton studied with Meisner, Robert Duvall, Sam Rockwell, even Gregory Peck studied with <laughs> Meisner. And, and Meisner is actually really popular in Hollywood because it's all about being alive in the present moment with your scene part. Uh, know, which is mm. very important for being yeah. on camera. So yeah. the most basic repetition exercise, I have to say these can get incredibly elaborate and evolved, but we're just going to mm. start with the most basic is you and a scene partner repeat a phrase back and forth. Like June would say your hair is shiny. And I would say my hair is shiny. Okay. So we're just saying that it has nothing to it. It's just sound. But then within it, I'm going to get an impulse to say it in a certain way that has a certain emotional meaning. That's just going to happen. Your brain is just, your body's just going to do that, right? Because it's so boring to say my hair is shiny <laughs> over and over again. And then what June S is training herself to do is respond in the moment. She doesn't know how I'm going to say my hair is shiny. And then she's going to say your hair is shiny in response in a way that like is really actively responding to that, even though the text remains the same. Okay. And so you keep doing that and, and, and eventually kind of these weird elaborate scenarios, uh, evolve out of that, you know? It, so it's really about being absolutely present in the moment and responding as authentically as possible to what your, your scene partner is giving you. Well, not, not to bring this down from a profound to a trivial place, but many years ago, decades ago, this was a thing in Britain where people would say, I read it in The Guardian. It must be true. And then, some, you know, someone else in the circle would say, I read it in The Guardian. It must be true. <laughs> and I don't think that was about listening. I think that was just about we have nothing to say to each other. So we're just right. going to do this Sunday thing. But now I know where that came from. So yeah, I mean, you, for that. you know, the canned version would be you are just changing the emphasis or something. Yeah, right? That's yeah. doing the thing wrong. You're really yeah. supposed to say it with no intention until one just kind of happens in the moment. And wow. so that you're alive for that when that happens and not wow. forcing it. The point yeah. is not to force anything, yeah, but yeah. to respond. Interesting. All right. Well, we've talked to many actors over the run of this show, and that has convinced me both that 
what they do for a living is magic, like maybe they're literal sorcerers, but also what a horrifically difficult vocation it is. There was something that Patrick said today, though, that made me envious. He talked about the very conscious process of getting feedback on his new show as he's putting it together and how he and his collaborator, director Simon Godwin, are using that feedback to make significant changes very close to the official opening night. Yeah. Now, obviously, writers get feedback from editors. We can share our writing in progress with you know, trusted friends to see what they think, get their help. But I can't think of anything quite like hearing the audience response, where they laugh, where they seem bored, where they go silent. Yeah. How useful is that? And, and should writers be doing public readings of their work to see where they're succeeding and failing? Well, you know, I have a couple responses to that. The first is part of what's going on there is that over the length of a career, you get good at reading the energy of a room. Where, because yeah. because an audience might be silent but paying incredibly close attention, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and feeling that is different from an audience that's silent because they're checked out. It yeah. looks the same from the outside. It's really about how it feels in that room. You know, mm -hmm. I worked for a long time uh, on a show with the uh, monologuist Mike Daisy, mm -hmm. and you know, he's a real genius at understanding what the room is doing. In part because mm -hmm. there is no fixed text to his performance, so he responds yeah. to that in real time. Stand-up comics do that right when they're developing yeah. the material another person who's actually a genius at it although an evil genius is is donald trump you know if you watch a bunch of yes. his rallies he's yes. very good at reading the audience and then he'll just try a bunch of random shit out and the stuff that works winds up in the stump speech and the stuff that doesn't work doesn't he's like a stand-up yeah. testing material so yeah. i think it is good to do public readings of your work i think it's good to maybe get a group of friends together and read some of it out loud just to see what happens i think you have to be careful with it though there are things that don't work out loud, even if the sentences work out loud. I just yeah, mean the yeah. effect of them has yeah. to do with the privacy of the reader encountering it on the page or, or in their yeah. headphones in an audiobook. Um, yeah. They're just, you know, the written word is not the same as the spoken word. And so mm -hmm. you can get over-determined by that. Uh, mm -hmm. In particular, you can get kind of attached to cheap tricks that goose yeah. a response from the audience. And yeah. so you, you do have to be careful and tasteful about it. But I do think like if you can find a reading series to get up and test some shit in progress, you know, do it. A audiences love it. Just say, Hey, this is something in progress. I'm working on this. You know, thanks for, thanks for listening. And they'll, they'll usually go with it. Yeah. That's a great point. All right, listeners, we hope you've enjoyed the show. If you have, remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. That way you will never, ever miss an episode. And just a reminder that by joining Slate Plus, you'll get ad-free podcasts, extra episodes of shows like Decoder Ring and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you will never hit a paywall on the Slate site. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to the great Patrick Page for a wonderful conversation and to our amazing series producer, Cameron Drews and uh, Kevin Bendis, who recorded this episode. You both are always our heroes, never our villains. We'll be back next week with Kristen Meinzer's conversation with longtime New York Times obituary writer, Margalit Fox. Until then, get back to work. 